Welcome to the Tightwad Tag, Episode 1, Moodle, Part 1, for the week of April 15, 2010. And John, before we get to talking about Moodle today, I just wanted to uh, uh, just sort of tell you something that was on my mind. Just recently, I had a chance to get a look at Linux Mint, the operating system, and I, and I really wanted to talk about it here on this podcast because um, in a lot of ways it, it blew me away, and I know it's off topic, but uh, it's not really off topic either because we talk about this sort of stuff. Well, yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's free, and right. and I saw it as well. Uh, we were at the TCEA conference uh, oh, a month ago or so, and uh, I'll just say this, visually appealing. Yeah, Linux Mint is based off of Ubuntu. Uh, in fact, they call it... Uh, uh, what do they say? Completely compatible with. Uh, it works with the Ubuntu repository, so it's not it's not a spinoff. It's just sort of a um, uh, what's the word? A modification, enhancement of. And uh, the thing that uh, Linux Mint has going for it, besides being visually beautiful, uh, they have some really great graphic artists working on this thing. I um, took a Linux Mint CD, popped it in the machine, um, turned it on, told it I wanted to keep the um, Windows partition that was already there, and it and just shrink it down, and install Linux, and um, and it took I don't know 15, 20 minutes tops, and I was online viewing Flash video in Firefox. I didn't have to install anything. I didn't have to do anything. I took a DVD, I popped it in there, and watched my movie. Now, for those of you who have used Linux before, you know how unusual that is um, uh, for for various reasons, for uh, for uh, philosophical reasons or legal reasons. Uh, uh, most Linux distributions don't come with that sort of stuff bundled in it. They come with it, and then you have to go add it and 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 uh, track it down and find the the package that works for you. Linux Mint just has all that there, so I would call Linux Mint at this point. You know, spring of 2010, the most grandma-approved Linux operating system I've ever seen. You pop it in, you do the install, and it just works. And you, like you said, I mean, you were able to install that alongside a Windows installation, so uh, you didn't have to scrap the Windows installation or anything like that, right? Right. Well, that's not unusual. Lots of uh, Linux distributions do that, and and it, it's basically the Ubuntu installer, but it's really just so streamlined and so simple. And Flash comes out of the po- uh, out of the box, and and Windows Media Player Codecs comes out of the box, and uh, DivX Video for DVD comes out of the box. It just does all this stuff just out of the box. I'm going to use the word out of the box as many times as I possibly can <laughs> because uh, that's that really blew me away, the fact that just putting that CD in and, and, and clicking a couple of buttons, and I had a fully functional, usable Linux distribution that would be perfect for Media Center, perfect for uh, uh, word processing. It, had, of course, came with an open office. It came with the GIMP. And so that one thing in one shot, in one 20-minute installation, has everything you ever need, and you probably would never need to put anything else on it. Now, you know, I what that makes me think of is the non-technical user. And uh, how many times do you see somebody who uh, basically has a, a hosed win- Windows installation, right? They've They've used the heck out of it, and now it's got a bunch of junk on there, and they don't know how to get rid of it. They don't, you know, and, and the solution is, well, it's time to buy another computer. And, and you know, I understand that. That's fine. And, you know, that's that's definitely not me. I'm beyond that point. But uh, but I, I see these people do this, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, fine, go get your other computer, but here's a perfect opportunity for people to at least dabble in, in Linux, right? I mean, uh, the average user in the past, 
couldn't even think of doing something like that. They'd, they'd get lost. It wasn't worth going through the learning curve and investing the time into it to the average person. Uh, but here's something where, you know, you got a hosed machine. You can just go get Linux Mint and, uh, and pop it on there, right? The hardest part of the process was downloading the file. You know, going to their site, downloading the ISO, burning the ISO to a CD, that's not stuff that everybody knows how to do. But, you know, get your cousin Ted, who does know how to do that, to do that for you. Pop it in, answer like four questions. Where do you live? What time zone do you live in? What kind of keyboard do you like to use? And boom, you're done. Yeah. Or if you've got like a 15-year-old or something yeah. living at the house, they, they could do it in about three seconds. Anybody born after 1990 or so probably <laughs> in good shape. All right. Yeah, that no, that sounds great. And uh, I, I know I've seen you working with it for uh, a little bit there, and uh, uh, I look forward to uh, dabbling with it myself. All right. So that was my little aside here, and then we'll get into uh, the topic at hand, which is Moodle, specifically the tech side of Moodle, the installation and maintenance of Moodle. And uh, this will be part one in a two-part series. The second part will be the teacher side. So first, let's just ask the question, what the heck is a Moodle? And so I'll answer that very simply. Moodle stands for Modular Object-Oriented Dynamic Learning Environment. Wow. There you go. Everything you ever needed to know about what is Moodle. That pretty much says it all right there. Now, for those of you who are like me, don't quite know what that means, uh, (laughs) Moodle is an open source course management system. Now, there are content management systems that we're all familiar with, like Joomla or Drupal or things like that, that help you manage a website. Um, a CMS, a course management system, uh, or a learning management system, as Michael Dugiamis likes to call it, is a way to handle uh, a classroom. Um, and the uh, contemporary examples that you might have heard of are Blackboard or WebCT. Those are the commercial versions of, of essentially the same product. Um, and, but we're tightwads. Right. <laughs> we, don't, <laughs> we don't do commercial unless we have to. Uh, and so uh, um, Moodle is an open source um, distance learning. You can look at it that way. If you've ever taken a web-based class in a college or even at a high school, you probably use something similar to it, or more, more likely you actually probably use Moodle. Moodle is, is, is very widely used. It's been around for several years now and is uh, heavily entrenched in education. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in preparation for this show, and I'm vaguely familiar with Moodle, but, you know, I'm more of the uh, the desktop support guy and kind of the, the guy down in the trenches, so I had to do a little bit of homework on this myself. And I uh, was a little surprised to find out that there's currently 46,405 active registered Moodle sites uh, from 207 countries around the world, uh, and that's as of uh, March 22nd, 2010. Uh, and that covers, I mean, a very wide gamut of, of just different applications. There's major universities, Idaho State University, Iowa State University, Washington State University, uh, UNLV, University of Wisconsin, uh, UCLA, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, so you've got these major universities using this tool. Uh, and then you've got, uh, well, we're from Texas, so Texas K-12, through uh, just a few ISDs, Eustis ISD, Alvin, uh, Honey Grove, that's uh, uh, using it, Highland Park, Houston, Humble, San Antonio. Again, the list goes on and on and on as far as that goes. Uh, so you've got traditional... Uh, higher education, uh, K through 12 using it. Uh, and then I found some 
interesting Moodle sites, and this is right off of the Moodle.org website, but uh, the Western Mennonite School. I didn't know Mennonites were allowed to use the Internet. I, you know, I, I was a little shocked by that one, too. That's why I had to put that down. All uh, you Mennonites out there, you're going to have to school us on that. I don't yeah, know how that I, works. You know, I, I was really hoping they had that one open, that you do have to be registered. <laughs> so I highly doubt that I'd get an insider look at that one. But uh, but there's also there's a lot of religious schools and seminaries using Moodle. Uh, another interesting one that I, I came across was the Washington State School for the Blind, uh, and and we had a discussion uh, off of the off of the air uh, about that and how the blind might actually, uh, you know, access a Moodle, uh, which does speak to the fact that uh, Moodle is this sort of built-in accessibility. Uh, it, it supports the web standards, uh, and, and um, so your accessibility, your uh, uh, text uh, readers and your your assistive tools for the for the blind and the deaf and that sort of stuff. It, it just it just works. It's just right there. So uh, I think that's a pretty cool thing to throw in there. That uh, it's it's used uh, by major universities. It's used by tiny little school districts. It's used by religious organiza- organizations and it's used by blind people and 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 probably everywhere in between. Yeah, I uh, you know I found a very interesting one that uh, I you know I might just go sign up for just to dabble with it, but uh, Tokyo Mokyo, uh, which was just uh, meeting people, having fun, and learning Japanese. And this was a, a Moodle open to the public, and it was basically, uh, it looks like an environment uh, just built around people who want to learn Japanese, and, and the courses are very well outlined, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. So, you know, just going to Moodle.org, even if you're not the the you know, the tech administrator, uh, just anybody could go to Moodle.org and probably find something listed there that they might actually want to go ahead and sign up for and just take the course. Uh, There's a lot of free learning uh, at the site there. So very simply, if you have something to teach, Moodle can help you teach it. Absolutely. And today we're going to talk to uh, two of our friends uh, from uh, here in Texas who are, are... I don't want to use the word experts, but who are experienced in the uh, technical side of Moodle, who are um, uh, experienced installers and and administrators. Uh, They're Rusty Miners of Eustis ISD and Ken Task, uh, formerly of a million different places, currently retired. And uh, we'll introduce (laughs) Man about town. We'll introduce those two guys now. And rather than um, telling you what little I know about them. I'm going to let them tell you about yourself. Rusty, why don't you begin first? Tell our listeners a little bit about uh, you and uh, your experience with Moodle. Okay. Well, I've been in technology for about 10 years. Been here at Eustis ISD for about seven, going on seven. Uh, We've had Moodle here for uh, a good two years, I believe. Uh, I actually batted around the idea for a couple of years prior to that. And, um, and got to know Ken Task along the way. Uh, glad we're going to have him here because having put in our Moodle a couple of years ago, um, it's been pretty trouble-free and I don't don't necessarily remember everything uh, that we went through at the time. But uh, but I expect to have my memory jogged a little bit as we discuss it. Um, but pretty much uh, along the way, as uh, as I find new additions, I want to uh, put onto it. Uh, Basically, I learned some of the basics again. Uh, just uh, just go to Google and find what I need. I've surrendered my higher brain functions to Google. I don't think anymore. I just Google. <laughs> Absolutely. I hear we, you. We welcome our evil overlords. <laughs> All right, Ken, now uh, let's tell everybody about you, uh, who you are, and what you do. 
Okay, well, I'm a retired educator, coach of 20 years experience, and then worked at a service center for 10 years. So I'm um, now what you might consider, or I, I claim to be a Moodle Cedar, uh, an open source advocate, and um, just try to help out. So you're the Johnny Appleseed of the open source world? I guess so. <laughs> and uh, t talk about your experience with Moodle a little bit. Oh, well, I started using Moodle, I don't know, several years ago. I think version 4 was out at the time. And it was so different than anything that I'd ever seen that I tinkered with it for about six months and then gave up for a while. <laughs> uh, had to let it kind of sit in my brain a little bit. So, And I think that's probably true of a lot of people that start with Moodle because it's so different from, uh, from what they're accustomed to doing, maybe in, in something web publishing that sometimes it's best to kind of walk away from something for a little while to kind of get a, a fresh, uh, refresh your mind a little bit and start again. All right. Well, this podcast, it's part of a two-part series uh, on Moodle. The next episode will be focused uh, more teacher-centered and more how to use Moodle in the classroom. This uh, Today we're talking to the geeks. We're talking to the, the, the server room guys. Uh, so we're going to talk about a little bit about uh, what you need to to install and set up and run a Moodle, um, and um, so I'm just going to ask that question: uh, What do you need to run Moodle? As as far as I understand it, you need Apache, PHP, and SQL, and that can be on a Linux box or a Windows box, or I presume even uh, a Mac OS server box. Uh, what else do you need, or or what else do you recommend, or what can you tell me about the actual setting up of a Moodle? Rusty, go ahead. <laughs> Ken, I was thinking this was going to be your forte. Uh, like I said, it's been uh, been a couple of years uh, since we actually put our production Moodle into service. And uh, I, as I recall at the time, uh, uh, I definitely wanted to go with virtualization. Now, that's kind of a whole different subject, but I... Um, I definitely wanted to be able to easily move my Moodle to another server in the future if I needed to. Uh, so I did use Proxmox Virtualization, uh, which basically was a flavor of OpenVZ. But really, I think that's kind of off the subject. Uh, other than that, uh, some of my considerations were uh, uh, the fact that uh, there would be a lot of uh, a lot of multimedia files to deal with, and whether I wanted to keep them in a separate place or if I was going to have enough hard drive space. Um, also, uh, uh, I think sometimes a question of uh, of other server software comes into play, uh, such as uh, hosting flash uh, files. So. Uh, uh, at some point, I believe I ended up having to install some sort of Red Five server, <laughs> but uh, my memory is a little fuzzy on it. And that's actually let's let's uh, talk about that a little bit. That's kind of, in my opinion, a um, a selling point of Moodle. Is it really is from the tech side, sort of a set it and forget it. You spend a few minutes setting up, and it's not it's not finicky. You don't have to tweak it and 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 mess with it a lot. In fact. That unlike a lot of open source things, they they really don't have an aggressive update schedule. They 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 release something, it works, it keeps working, and then they do a bundle up all their little stuff into a major release. Would would you agree with that statement? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, once once I found a good set of instructions, just uh, very carefully going step by step and even word by word, uh, it was hard to go wrong and. Uh, and it's uh, 
it's needed little in the way of repair or or uh, or anything like that since then. So uh, basically, instead of remembering uh, all of the things it takes, uh, I just have to remember where my original uh, notes were, or I have to remember how to get to Google and find them all over again. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's plenty of good uh, good information on how to install these things and what order to install them in and. Uh, I, I don't recall it being that much trouble at all. Can you maintain a number of Moodles for different organizations? Uh, what is your experience on the uh, upkeep side? About the only thing I've run across that was an issue had related to corrupted uh, tables in the database, and that was primarily because of uh, failed uh, failed backups. Um, it is possible. Uh, especially with OS limitations, uh, that a uh, a backup would fail if it reaches if a course reaches, for example, the four gig limit. Uh, and uh, the repair of the database itself and the tables weren't all that uh, traumatic uh, or knowledgeable kind of thing. Do here again, just like Rusty mentioned, you go to Google, you can find out information about just anything. The uh, only other time I think that I've experienced any kind of problem was really. One of my, uh, my own, one of my own making. Isn't uh, that the way it usually goes? Well, yeah, you know, in the, in Moodle screens, there are quite a few in there that warn you that you know, it, be careful making changes here in this configuration of whatever. Uh, it could could have dire effects, and and they they really should put that warning in red, <laughs> because uh, sometimes they they really do mean don't change this unless you know what you're doing. So. Mark, I would uh, I would add something uh, that just comes to mind. I know uh, I I learned partly about this from Ken and partly from uh, one of the other technicians on our staff, David Johnson. Uh, but with any Linux installation, uh, besides the Apache, PHP, SQL, uh, I highly recommend a Webmin installation. Yeah, I saw that you just put that in the show notes in great big bold letters there. Uh, in fact, I think Webmin is worthy of its own episode, and we may do that in the future because it really is a Linux administrator's best friend. Actually, it's a Linux guy who doesn't want to be a Linux administrator's best friend. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's what lets lets a Windows guy sleep at night when he starts diving into Linux. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It takes all those obscure config files and just makes them pretty clicky, and we Windows guys like pretty clicky. Uh, Ken, uh, tell me, uh, just give me a round number. How many Moodles are you directly or indirectly responsible for? Boy, uh, directly on a, on a regular basis, probably about 10. You might say, well, maybe 10 to 15. And indirectly, and I don't know. <laughs> all right, so... Let's conservatively say 20, and, okay. <laughs> and one time you've encountered one pretty massive problem, and that was because the file, the course, was 4 gigs, which is not going to be a, a common sort of thing. So, I mean, your experience there says to me bulletproof. Um, it really does speak to its um, rock-solidness, right? Uh, it, it pretty much is. It's, it's very difficult for a teacher. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's difficult for a teacher to really mess up in there. You know, um, I've not, uh, uh, and, and here again, the, the four gig limit really is something that, you know, is probably a little bug in, in Moodle, in that there should be some kind of warning that appears to somebody about, you know, the size of the course getting to the point where it's too large. But, uh, 
Uh, I've seen, uh, I, I usually, when I install something that's open source, one of the first things they do when I get it running is put it through a torture test. I try to make as many mistakes as I can with it to see, you know, just exactly how much punishment it's going to take. And Moodle has been one of those applications that can take quite a bit of uh, punishment and still bounce back. Yeah, we mentioned earlier at the beginning of the show how many active Moodles there are. Uh, uh, Sean quoted over 46,000 active uh, Moodle installations. Um, you don't get 46,000 of something if it's not pretty solid. Uh, so that's uh, that, again, I think is a pretty good statistic. And I, I looked up that statistic about two weeks ago, and it went up uh, in a two-week time frame by 19 registered sites. So uh, roughly at least one a day being added. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, I'm going to uh, skip on to the the Linux, the, the distribution. We're... Let's just stipulate here that we're Linux guys, uh, or at least using Linux all on our Moodle installs. And let's just talk about that. I know that there are people in, uh, doing it on Windows. Uh, that, however, is not the recommendation of the Moodle folks. And so we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about non-standard, unrecommended sort of ways to do it. So let's talk about the uh, the distribution of choice, the version of Linux that you guys chose and why you chose them. And, I, and I'll start out. Um, I run both uh, CentOS and Ubuntu servers at my school, and when it came to set up a Moodle, I, I chose to go with CentOS. Um, and I don't really know that I could give you a good reason for that. It's just the one that seems more server-y, if that's a word to me. <laughs> CentOS, when I think mm-hmm. server, I think CentOS. When I think desktop, I think Ubuntu. That's not to say you can't do... Uh, both with both, but uh, that's the one I went with. So, which which one did you guys go with, and why? We'll start with you, Rusty. Okay. Um, well, we went with the Ubuntu, and um, uh, my main choice was between Ubuntu or CentOS. Um, I, if I was counting on uh, calling Ken every day uh, and and not learning a lot about it myself, I I knew I'd uh, probably go with CentOS, but uh, I just had to make a decision at the time, and it seemed to me uh, that Ubuntu had so much information available, uh, you know, just with quick searches in so many places in such a big community of users, uh, and that it was growing so fast. Uh, so it was it was just a, a call I had to make. Uh, I can't say that uh, I had a, a, a very good reason for it. All right, what about you, Ken? Well, actually, I started with Red Hat a long time ago, so CentOS was really uh, kind of a natural progression for me. Uh, you know, of course, that's based on uh, Red Hat Enterprise without the Red Hat eye candy and, of course, support. Um, I have since been, been helping some people with Ubuntu servers as well, and uh, either one, to be honest with you, Ubuntu does have, uh, the reputation of being a little bit more leading edge, if you want to call it that. Uh, for example, the version of PHP and and uh, some of the other stuff in, in the upcoming Moodle 2.0, uh, in order to get the higher version of PHP on CentOS, you have to uh, use, it, use another repository where you can actually get that installed. But it's not rocket science, but you can do it. Uh, most of the machines I run personally are, are on CentOS, and really, the kernel is the same. Um, 
it, it really is a matter of, I guess, of how easy it is to administer. Now, we've already mentioned WebMem. One of the, one of the reasons I think I would go with CentOS is because there seems to be more tools in WebMem for CentOS uh, than there is in Ubuntu. And uh, since I remotely help folks all the time, I would prefer to have, to have all the tools I can get my hands on you know, when I'm assisting with somebody. So you, it, it really, you could use either one. It, it really is just kind of a personal preference, I guess. And I think that's really what it comes down to. What are you more comfortable using? Um, okay, I guess we answered that. And, uh, and I, I tend, I think I would concur with... Uh, with Ken on the uh, remote accessibility of CentOS, it's it's more out of the box uh, with that remote administration in mind. Uh, but that's you know it's the difference between um, what is it a four and a half gig CD that CentOS comes with and a seven hundred and twenty meg uh, CD or DVD versus a CDD. Wow, I just messed up that whole sentence. Monday after spring break. Yeah, That's all right. It's the difference between a four and a half gig DVD image and a seven hundred and twenty meg CD image. The the Ubuntu guys uh, have everything compacted, just give you what you need, and you have to go download everything else. Whereas the CentOS guys give you the kitchen sink right there on the disk, and you don't have to download anything. Uh, would you agree with that? That's probably their reasoning behind it. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just made it up, but yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> And so um, if you're going to install your own um, Linux server, uh, be it physical or virtual, and, and I'll, I'll say I'm going to steal some of Rusty's thunder here, um, I also run um, uh, my Moodle on a, a virtualized machine. I do everything, um, everything I can virtualized. And, uh, again, I did it with CentOS using VMware, and um, uh, he, you did it with... Uh, Help me out. What was it? Oh, I use uh, Proxmox. Uh, Proxmox being a hybrid of OpenVZ and KVM. So more specifically, uh, you might say I'm using OpenVZ because OpenVZ is not full virtualization. It's actually partitioning uh, the operating system and sharing the kernel. And so uh, you don't have the overhead of virtualized hardware. Uh so basically, that means you can run. Uh, I, I don't. Hopefully, I'm not overstating this, but you can run as many uh, partitions of Linux uh, almost as you want to without losing overhead to the virtualization process. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. In the midst of all that alphabet soup, I think we got it. There's uh, <laughs> OpenVC and XYZ and QLV or whatever. I do have one experience, pardon me, uh, with uh, virtualization. This this was really a remote kind of thing. Um, when it's installed, one of the things, and this is probably the questions you're going to be asking in the future, uh, but when it's initially installed, you really have the options to uh, reserve how much hard drive space it's going to use and also how much memory it's allocated. Now, I know in VMware, supposedly there's a way where you could set it up to where it's dynamic. Uh, uh, I've been across a couple of situations now where when they virtualize their Moodle, to me, remotely supporting it, it looks just like a Linux machine, okay? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've noticed is that if you don't leave yourself enough wiggle room, 
on your virtualized server itself to where you can allocate more memory to it or allocate more hard drive space and you have no more space to work on a particular server, you kind of get locked into some things, especially if your courses grow and you start adding stuff to it. So uh, uh, I would just advise anybody who's going to be setting it up on the virtual to to pretend like that what you're installing there is is, is are the specs of, of a new server. And, well, and, and that leads us perfectly into uh, talking about the uh, hardware and, and memory requirements of a Moodle. Um, I know we could go to the Moodle website and, and look at what they recommend, but, but we've got three guys here who are doing it every day. So let's talk about what, in your experience, um, a Moodle server needs. I personally would never recommend Moodle sharing duties. Um, I know some people are like, well, we've got a web server over here running Joomla. Let's throw Moodle on that. Uh, Moodle can be, it, it isn't necessarily always, but it can be very resource intensive. And so I always recommend a dedicated Moodle server. Um, do you guys have a comment on that one way or the other? Definitely if possible. Um, I, uh, I tend to virtualize more for portability and, uh, and disaster recovery than I do to, uh, to cram uh, too, many, uh, too many guests onto a single host. So uh, the virtualization isn't about, uh, isn't about that for me. Yeah, well, I'm, not, I'm talking about assuming it is virtual, as I said mm -hmm. earlier, mine is. Again, on a virtual machine, I would only put Moodle you know, in right. your environment. Don't share it with anything else because it tends to suck up all the resources a machine has, or it has that capacity, I'll put it that way. Right, and, and if I did, if I did uh, virtualize uh, other guests on the same box with the Moodle, uh, I probably would only do it on... Uh, for for services that were related to the Moodle, such as if I if I did want to uh, install a DimDim server, I might virtualize that on the same host uh, because the DimDim was to be supporting the Moodle. Um, I might do that with Kaltura or maybe a Mahara uh, server. And, and exactly. Uh, so so basically, if uh, if I did it, it would be f uh, because I wanted a different flavor of server to handle some of the things that that are is part of the Moodle mission, uh, so I guess would be one way to put it. Well, um, well I, I, I saw a formula over at Moodle.org some time ago. I might as well go ahead and mention it, and it, they may have changed it, and I'm sure it's going to change with the Moodle 2.0. Uh, they had a, a recommendation there that there be a, one gig of memory for every 50 concurrent users. And what they were referring to is not 50 concurrent users hitting the Apache, but 50 concurrent users actually interacting with the database. And I actually experienced this one time. I watched a, a, uh, a Moodle server that we set up really on, on a kind of beefed-up workstation for a little while until they decided whether or not they wanted to use it. And certain applications or certain modules inside of Moodle can, can eat up a lot of stuff. Uh, the chat module, uh, for example, uh, every time you launch a chat room, it opens up at, or uses up 400K. And, of course, on a one meg box and you open six chat rooms with, <laughs> you know, pretty soon you run out of memory. Now, one of the nice things about having it on a Linux box, by the way, is that, that it didn't give a blue screen of death. Uh, it just really stopped receiving uh, uh, logins, and the server was really still up and running all the time. So uh, the other things that I've noticed uh, uh, with a lot of folks, is that uh, 
Uh, of course, you know, fast NICs, as fast as you can get them. Uh, and as far as hard drive space is concerned, I, I think all this stuff really probably runs better off one physical machine than if you were to uh, take apart the various pieces of Moodle and move them to separate machines. Uh, now, except for multimedia, and, and nowadays, you've already mentioned Kaltura, uh, uh, and uh, I believe... That's okay. That's okay. I, I was hoping you'd have a lot more to pitch in about Kaltura. Well, this is something I'm kind of learning about them uh, recently. That's going to offload uh, some of the stuff uh, for multimedia serving and whatnot, you know, to another service. So really, your your video is coming from the cloud, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, they do offer, by the way, a, a download for what they call their Community Edition. And I've downloaded that and installed it and kind of tinkering and looking at it both ways. And obviously, you can tell... That when you try to serve out some kind of movie from the Moodle server that has Kaltura already installed on it, uh, it slows down. Mm -hmm. And uh, coming from their big beefy box and their big data pipe out there, it uh, appears to be a little bit faster. But, you know, I'm not sitting here with a stopwatch. All I know is that, is that you don't have to store your movies, for example, right there in your Moodle. Uh, those can be out there somewhere. And and depending upon your situation in the district, you know, your data pipe on the outside as well as uh, maybe the internal connections you have between campuses uh, and how well you're set up there, that, that could make a difference on where physically that particular machine happens to be located. So, uh, uh, it, you, you know, really, to be honest with you, you, you almost kind of take a look at the formula. And if you take a look at how K-12 uses it, you know, really Moodle was designed for higher education. And they use it asynchronously, you know, where a professor puts some stuff up in the course and, and students uh, access it anytime they need. Uh, but it's never as a group. If you take a look at K-12, uh, K-12 has a tendency to use Moodles like it was PowerPoint. So, you know, you have a lot of people hitting it all the time. And thus, when people ask me, I, I get to the point now where I kind of follow that old Windows rule of, uh, you know, whatever they recommend for memory, you, you, you take that and double it. Uh, yeah, and I oh. would say that uh, probably, uh, as, as you've already mentioned, I'm just going to um, sort of condense what you said here. The two most important things that you need on a Moodle are RAM and bandwidth. So a gigabit NIC if you can get it, two or more if you can make that happen, because you've got all those people pulling resources down over the same pipe. So you want that to be as fat a pipe as possible. And RAM, in terms of um, CPU power, at least my experience has been, it, it doesn't do a lot of number crunching. It is there uh, primarily as a server, as, as handing out stuff. And so the clients themselves do most of that number crunching. Uh, would you would you agree with that I've summarized that properly? Um. But, yeah, I'll jump into Rusty. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, actually, uh, I had a question. Uh, when you talk about the different ways that uh, that Moodle is used uh, between higher education and, and uh, primary grades and such, uh, would that be a recommendation for uh, possibly breaking up your Moodle into separate servers for different campuses, uh, even if you had to go on uh, – Lower powered hardware, or or uh, squeeze more virtual machines onto a host. 
Well, that's a loaded question, but you know, I, I've worked with, well, one ISD, for example, Clean ISD. They have 33 plus Moodles, and, and they decided that what they wanted was separate sandboxes for every campus. Mm-hmm. One of the issues related to uh, Moodle is the user base. And I, I'm actually involved right now with Victoria ISD with the same kind of thing. Now, they're going to be using LDAP, and what they wanted to make sure is that the students in the high school couldn't necessarily get into the courses that, that were being conducted uh, in, in, for various elementary school Moodles. Well, if you put them all into one one Moodle and try to manage all those users, you, you run across some issues. And if you had separate installations per campus, uh, for example, if you're doing LDAP authentication, you could point it to a different OU, uh, you know, especially for the elementary school, and there was no way that the high school kids then could, could possibly log in unless they happened to guess, you know, some elementary students' uh, login and password. Thus, you kind of keep them uh, apart from one another. Now, the bad thing about that is that if you have a couple of campuses that want to do something collaborative, uh, then you have to kind of tweak the LDAP authentication uh, and have it search that LDAP tree a little bit differently. But uh, I'm convinced that really, uh, as far as a, a large implementation, having something like an LDAP authentication or some other method, you know, because Moodle does offer, I don't know, maybe 10 different types. Uh, most ISCs, of course, will have LDAP. Uh, that that's the way to go as far as students are concerned. And since I'm on that subject, that, believe it or not, I would actually recommend the teachers uh, are either their accounts are either manually done or based on email authentication. That way, in case there's any trouble with the LDAP connectivity, at least the teachers can get in there and catch up, uh, catch up work, or they can grade papers, etc. So, um, and if you uh, don't do that, always, always, always have one administrative account separated from your LDAP or whatever your third-party authentication is. I, I speak from experience on that one <laughs> because if something gets hosed, you are locked out of your own server. Yeah, I think that was one of the first lessons I learned from Ken, and it was a it was one to remember. Uh, you know, that's that's and since you brought that up, that's one of the reasons for having Webmin because Webmin is your back door to actually resetting that password. That's true. You can actually go into the SQL database and and, and do that's that. It. Yeah. All right. Well, then uh, let me ask, and, and I think we sort of stumbled into that already. What are the some of the common mistakes people make? Some of the common snafus. So we talked about it a little bit about uh, uh, maybe mismanaging resources or having uh, diff- too many people with the wrong people in a Moodle. Uh, what else have you seen out there as as that you would uh, warn our listeners against doing? Uh, the one I just said: <laughs> make sure <laughs> that you have multiple administrators with multiple different levels of administration. And I would say, uh, as I've done on my server, set up a guest admin so that somebody else who is more knowledgeable, who wants to help you out, can get in there uh, as an administrator alongside you and and help out. Uh, So what other nuggets of advice would you have or or things to overlook? Frankly, frankly, um, coming up a little blank there, uh, obviously there are a lot, uh, but it's... um, been a while since I've run into one, and I'm not recalling offhand, so I'm going to defer to Ken. I'm sure he runs into those pretty regularly. Uh, okay. I, I do a lot more installs, so I get to practice it a lot more. <laughs> so one of the things that, uh, and I think this really goes for newbies most of the time, uh, and this is true of just about any open source server application they install, 
when they run across a permissions problem, uh, one of the first things they read about is, you know, or get advice from some forum out there about, well, set the global permissions, you know, to read, write, execute for everybody. And yeah, that'll probably make it work, but uh, it also does make your Moodle a lot more uh, less secure. So, uh, uh, learning how to set permissions and ownerships of files uh, is definitely one of the one of the initial things that that one would have to kind of get by. The uh, other let, one, let me let me let me interrupt you for just a second there. Remember your train of thought. I have a little story to tell you. Um, <laughs> just under two years ago now. Um, my wife uh, had our third child, and I'm not just saying that because I want to talk about my kids, but I was setting up our Moodle um, on my bench uh, in my office working on it, and to troubleshoot a problem like that, I set all my permissions to 777, and, and you know I knew I was going to get back to it later. And uh, I, had, I had the firewall open completely, right? I had everything all the way open so that it was just open to the Internet, open to the world, because I wanted to reduce the variables as much as possible. So I had just done that, and then I get the call from my wife. I'm on my way to the hospital. Meet me there. All right, and so I come back about a week later. Guess what my server had had uh, had done while I was away? It was pwned. I no longer was in control of my server. Uh, some 13-year-old kid in Kazakhstan owned my server, so I had to completely reformat the hard drive and start over again. Uh, so I can speak from personal experience that... Uh, uh, while it's not necessarily a bad thing to temporarily lay down your security, make sure you pick it back up uh, uh, before two weeks are over. I totally agree there. But uh, so uh, the, uh, the other thing has to do with uh, certain settings in Moodle. Now this is going to change a great deal in Moodle 2.0. I, I just installed two versions of that just to get a look at what what that looks like. Uh, there are places inside of Moodle that attempts to use uh, the operating system uh, shell and, and applications that probably exist on, on just about any Linux server. For example, zip, unzip, and aspell, and, and df, which is the, the, for free space. And uh, by default, Moodle does not set those paths because it is a cross-platform application. And therefore, it would be different, for example, on a Windows machine as opposed to uh, a Ubuntu or a CentOS box. So, uh, Finding all those little things in the Moodle admin uh, menu sometimes take a little poking around. Uh, but th there's one of those screens where they, they talk about setting a path, and then they warn you to be careful that you set the path correctly. Uh, otherwise, your Moodle, of course, will function uh, as it is. One of the things, uh, one of the additional things, and Rusty's often to kind of like me, I, I really do kind of push a, a Moodle. If I see some kind of uh, interesting add-on, I'm going to try it out. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've learned about third-party installations is it's a probably good idea to unzip it uh, on your local hard drive and get a look at it because you're being awfully doggone trusting uh, that the website that you went to is actually giving you good Moodle code. And sometimes they don't necessarily standardize the way things are installed, so they usually have a little readme in there. And that's that's a piece of advice I think I'd give anybody. If you see a readme, dog on it, take the time to read it. <laughs> yeah, and so, you're not talking about malicious code. You're talking about careless code. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Well, it could be malicious, too. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say that. I've never run across one, you know, to be honest with you. Uh, but there's always that chance. So uh, I've always learned to be a little bit cautious. It takes a little bit more time, a little bit more frustrating sometimes, but... 
uh, you know, the last thing you want to do is is get your students and your faculty accustomed to using it, and because you installed some kind of little thing you wanted to look at, it kind of wrecks stuff. Ken, what's uh, what's that going to be like when we start trying to upgrade to Moodle 2.0? Uh, are we going to have problems with some of the some of the add-ons we've put on in the past? I would imagine. And now, the rest of you going to have to give me a little leeway here. Just to say, <laughs> so uh, the uh, they changed quite a bit of the structure of things. I think permissions is going to be less of an issue because they're relying a, a lot more on the SQL database. Uh, they do have a directory structure. But they're really not using it like in the old way. It really, Moodle was writing to a folder. Uh, like when you uploaded a file, it would save it temporarily and then copy it over to uh, a folder, you know, a data folder. Well, it's using uh, a database now. And so there's references for things inside that directory that really are used by the database. Uh, giving the database definitely a lot more importance as far as how the Moodle functions. Um, All right, so, let's, let me interrupt here for just a little bit to bring our uh, audience sort of up to speed. Uh, Moodle is uh, right now at, at 1.9.4, uh, and it hasn't had a major upgrade in quite some time, really uh, probably only one since it was created. And Moodle 2.0 is the next big-time major upgrade uh, that is due out. Uh, the last information I saw said fall 2010. They said they'll try to have it ready in time for schools uh, to put it in place for the new year. Uh, I don't really know what that means. I'm not sure anybody really knows what that <laughs> means. But sometime between summer and winter, uh, they're going to be releasing 2.0. Uh, guys, help me out here. Are they deprecating the 1.9 uh, entirely, or will they hope, uh, support both of them for a while? Well, actually, if you if you hit the Moodle.org site, you'll see that they still have versions 1.7. I think they got 1.7 there still. Uh, 1.8 is still there. 1.9 is there, and I would imagine that when they when they announce that they officially release a 2.0 version for production, that they'll they'll leave the 1.97, which is the highest one I believe in nine, uh, out there and continue to improve it, uh, patch it as as it's needed. To be honest with you, uh, you know I I. I really don't like to be on bleeding edge. I don't mind kind of pushing the envelope and getting close to leading edge, but uh, I I can't. I haven't really gone through the process of taking a course or or moving an entire 1.9 Moodle, you know, over to a 2.0 yet. I would imagine there's going to be some things uh, that one has to do that is not necessarily normal. But once you get over the hump, you know, then everything 2.x, you know, uh, should work just fine. Yeah, they are promising an upgrade path. They didn't oh, yeah. say it'd be an easy upgrade path, <laughs> but they are yeah. promising an upgrade path from 1.9x to 2. Well, I'm expecting that's where virtualization is going to come in real handy. Uh, if it wasn't for virtualization, I don't think I, I'd, I'd be like all the people who are going to wait a good year before they even try to go to 2.0 to let everybody else make the mistakes first. But uh, with virtualization, my first thought uh, would be that I would uh, have a totally separate installation uh, running side-by-side -side with my earlier Moodle. Uh, but with virtualization, I have a lot of options. Uh, I can keep the old one going. I can make a copy of it and try the upgrade path or – and. The third option is to have a totally separate Moodle 2.0 uh, 
side by side. Not sure which way to go yet. May maybe uh, all of those uh, just to try them out. Yeah, my thinking on that also being in a virtual environment is clone the one that's up and working, and then try to upgrade it. And if it works, shut down the other one. If it doesn't, no harm, no foul. Just scrap it and start over again. That's that's the beauty of a virtualized environment. You just move a couple of files and and start working on those. Yeah, I'm exactly. Right. So let's. Here, just for those folks that aren't into virtualization yet, you can do it with a regular machine. So true, true. You know, uh, and anybody out there is listening, I'd be glad to help them do that. Yeah, uh, and in fact, I would say uh, the vast majority of Moodle installations out there right now are not virtual. Virtualization is, is still relatively new uh, in the school environment. Uh, Rusty and I are just a couple of early adopters on that. So let's say we want to just totally skip all this uh, stuff on our on our own and not mess with the server and want to have it hosted. Um, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Uh, I seems like I keep going first, so I'll jump in here, uh, especially since mine might be kind of short. Uh, I, uh, I definitely would go that way if if that's the best choice you have. I, I would much prefer uh, hosting my own uh, but uh, but definitely for a lot of people it would be uh, uh, a lot a lot less pain uh, painful to go uh, with uh, a, re- a remote host. Uh, but I would be a little concerned about some of the uh, some of the mods and add-ons uh, giving you trouble or, or getting them going on a remote host. I've I've heard some people have trouble with that. Uh, but and I, and I know we've got some uh, some people friends of ours that we highly respect that uh, wouldn't do it any other way. Uh, uh, our friends at White Oak do it that way. Um, I'm hoping Ken uh, knows a fair bit about this. I'm thinking uh, I, I was thinking that uh, the people Ken works with uh, actually do some of the remote hosting, don't they, Ken? Well, uh, Alistair recently, and, and it sounded like, this is going to sound like a bad advertisement, but they're going to be starting to concentrate a little bit more on their Teams Data Plus product, and they're kind of they're going to be getting out of the Moodle business. So, uh, as far as a uh, remotely hosted solution, I mean, there are quite a few options out there. Uh, to be honest with you, and, and I'm sure Wido would would agree with this that that going with a Moodle partner. Uh, one that's officially recognized as, I guess you might call it a reseller for Moodle, is the way to go. Uh, here in Texas, uh, there's one called Remote Learner, and uh, they do they do contribute third-party plugins and then share it back to to the Moodle.org community. So that's a, that's a good thing. Right. That's uh, uh, let's just talk about what a, a Moodle partner is. If you go to the Moodle.org site. Uh, you can get a list of, of partners, and those are people who are actually working with the Moodle project. They're they're contributing code. They're working on developing it. They're not just making money off of hosting. They are making money off of hosting, but that's not all they're doing. They're also giving back to the project. So yeah. when you choose to go with a Moodle partner for your hosting, you're not just paying for a service. You're actually making the product you use better indirectly. True, and, and they do. Uh, uh, the, now, the one bad thing about that is that and I guess maybe for folks that are really seeking this kind of solution, you you as a, a person or a district that has Moodle in, uh, on uh, Moodle Partner Server, you may not be able to run uh, third-party plugins. 
Uh, a lot of that has to do with the relationships to the databases and some other tweaks that those third-party plugins uh, might require. Uh, they're strictly Moodle. And uh, so if you really want to push the envelope and do some different things, uh, then you may not be able to do it with a, with a Moodle partner. Now, recently I read an article that uh, the remote learner has partnered with Kaltura, and, or Kaltura. And so uh, they're... They appear to be one of the more uh, forward-seeking Moodle partners, uh, although I haven't chopped around all that much. Uh, here again, though, you, you you kind of trade off. You know, anytime you remotely host, you you give up some control. And uh, I, this is going to sound like a bad advertisement for SiteGround, and, and but this was my last experience with them. You know, the SiteGround offers real cheap. You know, like what is it, four ninety-five, and and you get a little menu and. You select Moodle and boom, it's installed. But as I understand it, the way SiteGround works is that you get the latest and the greatest when when you install it, but then you're responsible to do the updates. And uh, that kind of throws some folks for, for a loop. Besides, if you want to, um, like if you, well, there's another option here, you know, it, it, and you really could rent a dedicated machine over Rackspace and uh, be in total control of. of of what uh, you get to install on there, and, and the Rackspace people have support options where they'll help you out with uh, protecting the machine, the firewall, and that kind of stuff. But then you're pretty much to, you got a, a free playground, so to speak, so that you can solve just about anything you want. So uh, all of it, of course, uh, is based on cost. You know whether or not you can afford it. So, like as you say, uh, or as I would say. Go with SiteGround if that's all you can afford, but otherwise uh, uh, don't try to cut too many quarters on remote hosting because uh, you are going to run into some disappointment with the uh, third-party plugins and, and such as that. Well, just yeah. to, to interject a little bit there, there's really kind of two sorts of remote hosting. There's, there is like Rackspace or SiteGround or, or a service that, that Sean and I both use called HostMonster where you just have space on their server, or at Rackspace you actually have a server on their data center, uh, and then that's that's really only one step removed from running your own server. Essentially, you are running your own server. You're just not doing it in-house. And then the it's other just one, another, right? It's just another way of virtualizing. Right. Uh, you know, then, except somebody else is hosting your virtual box. Another one like Moodle Rooms or Remote Learner, where they actually they are managing your Moodle. They're doing not just the server stuff, but the actual Moodle stuff itself. So there's there's really two levels of of hosting when we talk about hosting. <clears throat> well, and I, I'm a little curious, uh, and especially to get the guest input on. Uh, you know, we're talking about mostly server admins here, but I'm curious about the uh, the rogue teacher, so to speak, you know, that's maybe at a district that's not even anywhere close to putting up their own Moodle, not interested in it or whatever. Are, are there any teachers out there that uh, are maybe going the hosted solution in order to put up their own, their own Moodle uh, on the side, so to speak? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can say that for a fact. Uh uh, I, I know SiteGround probably has a lot of teachers that, that uh, have Moodles simply because their their ISD isn't quite ready to do that yet. Uh, and, and, and it's a good thing. That's not a bad thing but because they actually get to see this, the, the, the admin side of Moodle, which many many people don't get to see. Uh, uh, this is going to sound bad, but 
occasionally I get calls uh, to assist with something, and, and, and they'll give me their login and their password. So I'll log in as them because they're not the administrator. Uh, and you can readily see that they, they cannot do something. They can't turn something some module on or off or, or tweak a setting to it. So, uh, and that's, and I'm not saying that there's, you know, server administrators that would purposely leave things off, but but then again, <laughs> there there could be, and, and there could be good reasons for that kind of thing. But uh, I have seen uh, persons in instructional technology in large schools who normally aren't the server admin types, and they really desired not to go there. Uh, but if they if if they want to do it. Then, then they end up learning that that side of it. And I think a lot of folks in instructional technology, especially the ones that uh, deal at the campus level, eventually will move more and more towards uh, server kinds of applications and administering those. So, uh, and it's not rocket science anymore. You know, I mean, especially inside the application, you just got to read the screen. You know, follow the little rule of rats: read all the screen and. And don't click on something if you don't think you should. Okay. Well, uh, now we've talked we've talked quite a bit uh, about the add-ons and plugins and modifications that you can make. Uh, what would, uh, as far as you gentlemen are concerned, what would be the essential add-ons, the things that you just ha- ha- absolutely have to be able to have? So, regardless if you're doing it in-house or if you're doing it hosted, uh, these are the things that you see uh, you just need to have on your Moodle. Well, the subject of LDAP has already come up. Uh, I, I consider that extremely essential. Uh, uh, to If you do run LDAP or Active Directory uh, in your district, then uh, you absolutely want to connect your Moodle to it so that uh, you don't have, your users don't have to maintain separate username and passwords. I would agree with that, that's for sure. Um, one area I think maybe that a lot of folks don't get off into very much, but... Um, you can find a bunch of these over at Moodle.org, having to do with the administration side of the Moodle. Um, it really helps to know, for example, whose course is getting close to the four gig limit. And so there are reports over there uh, that you can install in the Moodle that uh, would show the course size, you know, in one screen. Uh, that also gives you kind of a little bit of heads up about which particular course might be suffering from uh, backup fatigue or, or, or corrupted tables. As far as other blocks and mods, and those are pieces that make up Moodle, uh, blocks are those things that usually go over in the side panels, although that's not always true. Uh, uh, one of the ones that I really like is a thing called a quick mail. It does allow the uh, teacher of a course to email individually uh, the students in that course. Of course, you know that the students would have to have email addresses and valid email addresses. Uh, one that I install all the time is called YouTube. It's a block, and I realize that a lot of uh, districts may actually uh, filter YouTube. Here's one thing I found out about it, though: uh, the if you could filter everything else in your district except for the Linux server, uh, you give it a bypass, and uh, it's the only one then that actually would be requesting YouTube content, and the the way that block works, there's accountability. Uh, some teacher or administrator has to put in the URL for for the movie, and as a result of that, you have accountability. So, 
uh, I would be less afraid uh, to install something like the YouTube block on a Moodle server if I set up the firewall that way. Uh, as far as mods are concerned, there's one called Book, uh, another one called Questionnaire, which will allow you to do surveys, although it's uh, somewhat limited. One I definitely would install was one called Certificate, you know, because the kids do like uh, to take something home to mom and dad to put up on the fridge, and, and the certificate would do that. Uh, Lightbox Gallery for photos. Uh, a lot of folks are off into, uh, well, like what we're doing right now, podcasting. There is a, a, a fairly good uh, podcast module for uh, Moodle that you can find over at uh, Google Code. And you're going to uh, post all these on our show notes that uh, so when we get the uh, the the podcast out there, people are going to uh, going to have all this stuff, right? Because because uh, uh, I I can't even remember that, and you just said it two seconds ago. <laughs> Sounds well, like a lot of good stuff, though. Yeah, and one thing I also would install, I would investigate different themes. I mean, one of the first things that that people uh, want to do when you get a Moodle install is change the way it looks, and. Uh, that's that's somewhat limited uh, uh, because they really concentrate not so much on the way it looks, but the way it functions most of the time, which I, I happen to agree with. Uh, there's uh, some some pretty nice, uh, uh, I guess, more modern themes that you can find out there, like drop-down menus and whatnot. So, uh, uh, but and, and then also, you know, setting up the courses in your Moodle uh, in such a fashion to where you allow the teacher some control over the way it looks. You can actually uh, change or, or allow the uh, various teachers to to choose a theme out of a selected list. They can't install one, but they can choose a theme out of a selected list and then use it. And uh, some of those are very age-appropriate. Uh, text is a little bit bigger. The icons are a little bit bigger. It, it's a lot more graphic, you know, for elementary school Moodle implementation, and less so as you, as you move up the ladder. So... Uh, Besides it, I, there's tons of stuff out there uh, at Moodle.org, and a, lots more, uh, a lot more stuff coming. One of the things that I've uh, recently been exploring is one called uh, Xhabis ePortfolio, and uh, I think it has a lot of promise. Uh, of course, also at the same time, in relationship to that, another, and I'm going to mention this because I think we've already mentioned it, uh, Another application that, that evidently Moodle is partnering with uh, uh, is Mahara, and uh, they're uh, they're heavily into the ePortfolio business and been there for quite some time. Uh, even the Moodle 2.0 has improved the uh, the Moodle networking between those two servers. They are really separate servers, but you can tie them together. So, uh, and that that's something I think I would definitely look at. Uh, for it holds such great potential is the Moodle networking. Uh, and that's, that's uh, kind of a conceptual thing, and it does require a cooperation between the districts that are involved, but uh, it is definitely one way you can, you can stop from reinventing the wheel all the time. Uh, and, and if you get a couple of Moodle, network, Moodle servers networked, you can share content and the expertise of all the teachers involved, too. All right, guys. Well, go ahead. Uh, yeah, let me jump in and uh, add a few more comments about the add-ons. Uh, uh, Kim did touch on uh, the podcasts, and even though you can uh, post uh, multimedia uh, just about anywhere in Moodle, uh, I definitely recommend that you find some sort of uh, 
uh, organizer for your media. I um, I use something called Inwicast Media Center, and I only uh, only mildly recommend it. Uh, it. It it was just the best I could find at the time, but I'm hoping for hoping to definitely improve on it. Uh, uh, but basically, uh, you you do need some way to organize your podcasts and your videos, your vodcasts and such. Um, ePortfolio was mentioned. Uh, uh, I've got that on mine, and but I haven't uh, pushed it a lot because uh, I'm I'm hoping for much better things in Moodle 2.0 as far as the uh, the portfolio features or the uh, uh, Ken mentioned the networking with uh, other servers such as Mahara. Uh, my understanding is that Moodle 2.0 is going to uh, uh, allow a lot more interaction. Uh, uh, as far as moving files laterally between between services and and other web 2.0 services, uh, so that instead of uh, downloading a file from Moodle and uploading it into Google Docs or vice versa, I guess it would be more often you would download it from Google Docs and upload it into Moodle. Right now, uh, I'm hoping, if I'm understanding it right, we'll be able to move those files directly from one to the other. Um, but definitely, uh, Google Docs Education Edition is something that, uh, it, it, to me, is a must-have complement to Moodle. It's uh, it's also something of a competitor to Moodle, but uh, I, I I couldn't do without either one of them. Uh, sometimes uh, sometimes it seems that Google is a little easier to use and and takes some attention away from Moodle. But in the long run, uh, the people who get more and more into Web 2.0 will gravitate back to Moodle, I believe, also. Uh, A couple other things I'll I'll mention, uh, I think we've touched on briefly, uh, uh, is DimDim and Kaltura. Uh, I don't know if we want to talk about those anymore, but uh, definitely some things that I'm trying to work on adding to my Moodle. And those last ones, uh, and remember, I'm the noob here, but uh, that's regarding like uh, hosting of videos within your Moodle, correct? Uh, yeah, Kaltura. Actually, I mentioned uh, the Inwicast Media Center and a way to organize your podcasts and vodcast videos and such. I'm hoping that uh, Kaltura is pretty much going to replace that in the long run, anyway, to where uh, to where it will, you know. Give us a lot more self-service features on on podcasting and vodcasting. Uh, I think Ken's been uh, playing with that a lot lately. I uh, a few months ago I set up a Kaltura server uh, uh, successfully, but uh, but then I had to get back to some real work for a while, and I'm hoping to really pay some attention to it in the next few months or at least over the summer. Uh, because for at least two years now, I've I've known that it, I've got to set up some sort of in-house YouTube situation, some sort of self, uh, more of a self-service situation for multimedia, uh, rather than uh, the the difficult uh, list of all of the steps people have to go through to uh, post their media on uh, Moodle right now. Yeah, we've been looking at um, using OSTube for that, and assuming I ever get it working, we'll probably do a podcast on OSTube. But right now, the only podcast that I could do would be Help, because uh, <laughs> it's not quite working for me yet. Yeah, actually, I, I think I looked, I've looked at a bunch of them, and uh, Kaltura so far has been the most promising. And then at TCA 2010, uh, heard some really promising things about it. And uh, like I say, I'm I'm hoping Ken's going to jump in back in a, about it here if uh, if it's appropriate, uh, because uh, 
out of all the ones I tried, it seemed like it may be much to me seemed like it uh, held the most promise. What do you say, Ken? Well, I think so. Uh, and, and they're commercial, remotely hosted, if affordable, I, I think would probably be be the better way to go. Uh, they got a lot more bells and whistles. That's typically how it works. You know, the, the community edition, you lack a little bit, and of course, you have to kind of dig. Uh, the remotely hosted commercial version has all the bells and whistles. Well, one of the things I discovered about it was that, uh, and considering that uh, as an example, I'm not saying everybody has to do this, so this is not an advertisement for Apple, but the uh, the laptops that comes with the little cameras, rather than using them for spying on folks, it might be a good idea that they could, <laughs> that they could use it for something a little bit more appropriate. Well, Cal, uh, Kaltura actually has, when you uh, connect to it, it has the option of uploading, uh, of course, your, your video, uh, but it also has uh, the options of doing one live, where uh, you have, and this uses Flash, where you have to connect back to your camera and your laptop. And I, oh, I can see all all kinds of potential good things that could be used for that. Uh, it uh, it does uh, one of the things that Caltura did that OS2 didn't do. OS2 gave you the kind of the framework, but it was re- you were responsible for getting the pieces. Uh, needed to do the document conversions and the, and the uh, multimedia conversions installed and functioning properly by yourself. Uh, Kaltura, the the community edition, uh, one of the reasons it's such a big download is because it put all those pieces in there for you. And uh, less as far as meshing those kinds of things, it was a heck of a lot easier to do than, than, than OS2. Now, I've also used OS2, but just like you, Mark, I struggled with with getting the various pieces, and, and now I'm going to really go back on my word here, but this is where Ubuntu might be a better option uh, because those pieces are a little bit easier to install on a Ubuntu server than they are on a CentOS box, that's for sure. I think I'll definitely see a Kaltura install in my very near future. <laughs> well, Ken, Ken reminded me of one of the one of the reasons why Kaltura looks so good. Uh, I made uh, I used the phrase uh, in-house YouTube, uh, but actually Kaltura is kind of an in-house YouTube and UStream. Isn't that correct? From what you said? Yeah, and and I've been exploring the other to that. You know, to where you know a lot of people might use something .tv out there for that kind of thing, but. I think they're working on the ability to be able to do exactly that as well. So uh, streaming, real-time kinds of streaming, uh, as well as all the other services that they offer. They've got some big customers, too. Uh, so it doesn't look like they're going to go away uh, anytime soon. And uh, so, uh, Besides, it's kind of nice to read documentation that's actually in English rather than in German. So, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I had also mentioned Dim Dim. Now, that's... Uh that's actually more uh, video conferencing, whiteboard sharing, and uh, and document sharing, uh, and it, and it's pretty easy to uh, to add that to your Moodle also with Dim Dim. Is that uh, is that free? I'm assuming I know Dim Dim has a free version. So yes, it, it's got a free version that they host, or the, or they've got a community edition that you can uh, install yourself. Uh, I I haven't even touched mine in a while, but uh, it's also they've also got a virtual appliance. Uh, that was wow. the easiest way to get it going. Uh, a virtual appliance on VMware Player or or VMware Server either one. 
All right, guys. Well, I appreciate your uh, input. This has been good stuff, uh, but I'm not going to keep you any longer. Um, if you, uh, just before we go, I'll give you a chance to have uh, one final thought. Uh, can you go first? What's your What's your parting thought for us? Your Your last nugget of wisdom. <laughs> parting thought. Uh, well, don't get comfortable. Uh, there is nothing. Uh, nothing is constant but change, and and that's the way it is. Except from a vending machine. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> so. So those of you that haven't jumped into using something different and trying it out, you know, now's the time to sharpen the saw. I mean, finances that aren't getting any better in public schools, and you're asked to do more with less money. And uh, I think using open source and, and Linux boxes in particular for, for uh, uh, strategic purposes definitely fits the bill. All right, Rusty, you're up. Well, I... I'd say uh, if you can do it with virtualization, do it. If you can't, do it any way you can, including uh, including third-party remote-hosted, uh, even uh, even uh, SiteGround. Uh, it it'll definitely be worthwhile at whatever level you can and you can get into it and uh, in whatever avenue. All right, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it very much, and uh, we thank you for being part of the Tightwad Tech. Thank thank you all for inviting me. All right, thanks for having us. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. Well, thank you guys for being a, a part of our podcast. That was really awesome. We we appreciated your your input, and so now we're going to move into our regularly regular weekly feature, our tips of the week. And uh, so Sean is going to begin with our teacher tip of the week. Yes, thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm going to start off with Wordle.net. That's W O R D L E dot net. And uh, a lot of teachers out there will already uh, may have seen this or at least heard of it. It's a tool for generating uh, quote-unquote word clouds uh, from text that you provide. So if you have a uh, just a written document, a, a paper that's been written, whatever, uh, you can feed this into Wordle, and it's going to give you a visual uh, depiction of, of the word usage in that document. And it's really hard to describe exactly without actually seeing it, so I, I'd love to have people go over there and take a look at it. But uh, what, what really comes to mind as far as uh, what I how I see people using this is identifying certain words in the, in the text itself that are maybe being overused. Yeah, the more the more the 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 more commonly the word appears, the larger it is in the word map. And uh, just to test this off, I fed it the URL for my personal blog, and uh, it's my personal blog, right? So I talk about family, I talk about faith, I talk about technology, I talk about uh, education, I talk about politics. It's just you know my stuff. And um, of all the things that uh, that I talk about, most of all, the largest word on the map was the word just. So I use the word just far too often in my writing. Just and a little bit. Just a little. <laughs> I just use just all the time just because it's just such a just great word. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and you, you brought up a great point because uh, at Wordle.net, uh, you can obviously just copy and paste text out of any document that you want to and run a Wordle, and it, it will generate this, uh, this Wordle picture for you. But uh, you can give it a, a an URL of an RSS feed or Atom feed uh, for your blog or uh, anything else like that, and it will run a Wordle for you on that document. So a uh, nice handy tool uh, if you're uh, if you're running blogs or maybe you have students doing blogs, uh, things of that nature. So uh, uh, just to wrap up on that, it's uh, it is licensed under Creative Commons. Uh, so. Uh, those wordles are essentially yours to use as you want to, and uh, even in their FAQ, it said, "Hey, 
you know, if you can make money off of your Wordle, then you, by all means, you go right ahead and do it. They just ask that you give them a little bit of credit and uh, maybe push some people to their site. So uh, Wordle.net, that's the teacher tip of the week. And for the tech tip of the week, this one's a, a, a short one but a good one. It's uh, Prism, which you can find at um, um, Prism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that place. Yeah. And for the tech tip of the week this week, it's a, it's a pretty good one, uh, uh, but it's a, a simple one. It's Prism, which uh, is part of the Mozilla Labs. You can find it at prism.mozillalabs.com. And uh, what Prism does is it's, it's a really small, bare-bones web browser um, that is, essentially becomes a web application. I first heard about it when looking at the Hootsuite uh, Twitter uh, client, and I wanted I like desktop clients, and I don't want to have to always have a web page open. Prism um, gives you the best of both worlds. It takes a web page and makes it into a desktop application, uh, like if you're doing Google Docs or, or Gmail or something like that, something that you want to behave as though it were a desktop application, but it's really a web app. You can feed that into Prism. You simply give it the URL, and it creates a nice little wrapper around it, and it looks and behaves exactly like a regular uh, window on your Windows or your Linux or your um, Mac system. But well, and it even creates the desktop icon for you. Right, you get a desktop nice. icon. icon you, get, you, do, you get It looks like a desktop application, but it actually pulls data from the web. And so it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, Google uh, does that with Google Chrome, uh, and uh, th- that's an option. And Firefox also has a new feature that will, it's a plug-in that will make Prism documents. But uh, Prism is built on Firefox, so you can add in your favorite uh, Firefox extensions, um, whatever that might be, Adblock or, or uh, whatever, Maybe uh, no script, script or, or whatever you want, want to do there. Um, you can put that in. Um, it's not quite as easy as it is to do it in Firefox, but the documentation is there, and it does explain how to do it. And uh, so that's my tech tip of the week, Prism from Mozilla Labs. And that's all we have for you this week. Uh, thank you for joining us. As always, you can get more information by visiting our website at thetightwadtech.com. Uh, where they'll have show notes there, a uh, blog about the show, and uh, just uh, you can c- uh, contact us. You can send us email. You can uh, uh, comment leave on feedback, the show. comment. Uh, as I always say, we're your servants, and uh, we want to know how we're doing, so let us know. And so that's it for this week. Uh, my name is Mark signing off. I'm Sean Kybel signing off as well.